Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Coming up on today's show, things burn, all kinds of things burn, and we have a very primal relationship to fire. Some say it's owed to the fact that of all creatures, we alone possess the ability to create and sometimes control fire. Others say it's rooted in our primordial relationship with fire as being the key to our evolution and dominion over the natural world for good or ill. And some believe that our connection to fire is wrought from the same stuff that binds us spiritually to the divine. So, a meditation on fire on today's show. Enjoy it, if you can, after the news. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Fellow tribesmen of the Ulam clan, as you know, 10 sunrises in the past we were attacked by the Wagabu tribe. They killed our fire tender and took the tiny flame he guarded inside the bone skull of a saber tooth. Since that day, we have lain in darkness every night, cold and hungry. If we do not get fire again soon, we will all die. Can I just say- Let me finish, Wolfka. I have chosen three of you to go on a quest for fire. That means you leave this valley You find a place where there's fire. You put some of it in the bone skull. You bring it back. The reason I'm going into such detail is that two days ago I picked three of you and they didn't go anywhere. It turns out they did not know what a quest is, so we lost precious time that way. If I could Not yet, Wolfka. The three of you I have picked are Gaw, Amukar, and you, Wolfka. Can I ask something now? Go ahead. Why don't we just make some fire. Because we don't know how. I could do it. My uncle showed me how. You know how to make fire. Sure, you just need two sticks, uh, some dried grass, and some dung. A lot of people try to skip the dung, but it's super important. And it has to be plant-eater dung. Woolly mammoth, giant kangaroo, wild goat, those are all 
really great dung sources. See, the thing about dung Wait, is- wait, wait. First of all, stop saying dung. Second of all, did it never occur to you that we needed fire? When we were cold and shivering, when wild animals dragged some of our people into the darkness, did the thought ever, for one moment, flicker across your brain that we desperately needed some friggin' fire? What? Not really. I-, I thought you were taking a break from it or something. Like, maybe you know, the kids were spending too much time sitting around it. I-, I don't know. I just assumed it was like, turn off your fire month or something. We really have to work on communication around here. Maybe we could start by listening to people talk about what fire means to the human race. And now he still thinks the whole thing is just a passing fad. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I'm not really sure this fire thing. I know the kids like it, um, but I'm not sure it's it's here to stay. Um, and I think it's a big time waster, too. It's a total time sink fire. No, in, in all seriousness, why did Edwin O. Wilson and Charles Lumsden title their book on the origins of the human mind, Promethean Fire? Because even though fire is a metaphor for just about everything, and we're going to say that again and again today, it's especially apt in connection of th- with thought. There's something about, in fact, our ability to make fire and our long association, our our uh, our association with fire that really pretty, pretty much spans the life of the species and precedes it, that somehow or other is on a parallel track to the notion of the development of a human brain and of thought. So we talk about fire all the time. We equate it with lust and power and inspiration and change, sex, death, thought, creativity, spirituality, purification, the soul itself. It's all fire. In fact, when we decided to do this show, it seemed like a really easy thing to do. On the other hand, when you really start thinking about this, I mean, we're so closely interwoven with fire, it's really hard to peel it away and look at it. It might be harder than almost anything. But I'm babbling. Why don't we just let somebody more eloquent or more serious sounding like Orson Welles? Let's have Orson Welles get us started. We have done stunning, marvelous things, we human beings. The self-made masters of this earth the thinkers, the dominant species, gifted with reason, obsessed by the driving need to change and achieve and overcome. And yet, for all of our genius, we owe our success more to providence than to math or physics or philosophy. We owe it to this. A simple, primeval flicker of heat and light called fire. All that man is springs directly from fire. Without it, had we never tamed it, our fragile breed would have died out unmeasurable eons ago, alone and cold in the dark of some terrifying prehistoric night. All right, so that's the whole show. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, but that kind of is the whole show in a way. I mean, that the story of humankind is the story of fire. And so we got interested in this partly by reading a, a piece by uh, Steve Pine, who's one of our guests today. He's a professor of life sciences at Arizona State University and is the author of Moved by Fire, History's Promethean Moment and Fire, A Brief History. Steve has lectured and taught on many aspects of man's relationship with fire, including fire ecology, fire symbolism, fire ceremonies around the globe. Also with us right now, we'll have other guests as we go along here today, but also with us right now is Dr. Christian Tryon 
Tran. He's an assistant professor of archaeology at Harvard University. I'm going to begin with you, Christian Tryon, because let's begin at the beginning. Let's begin, to use Orson Welles' term, with the taming of fire. So, so do we know with any degree of certainty when human or human-like beings first tamed or, or were able, able to control fire? First of all, let me say, uh, hi, Colin. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, and Orson Welles is certainly a very difficult act to follow here. Yes. In terms of certainty, and when it comes to archaeology, that's a word we almost never use. Um, we know nothing with certainty. But in terms of the origins of fire uh, use, it's tricky. Um, the archaeological evidence is pretty scant. Um, people seem to have used it by about a million years ago. But people seem to have controlled uh, using it pretty routinely by about 400,000 years ago. But archaeological evidence is always sort of difficult uh, to interpret, particularly the further back in time that you go. And is there a way to say what, I mean, this is a huge question, obviously, but controlling fire, uh, I, I mean, the implications, uh, I would imagine, were huge and, and probably occasioned a whole series of kind of domino-affected developments. I don't know how how clear the archaeological record is on what it meant to tame or control fire. Yeah, you bring up a good point. And in some ways, the, the evidence for fire, for the, for the impact of fire, is much stronger than the evidence for when people first started using it. So you look at changes in the human body. Uh, you can see this in the fossil record. You can see the outcome of this in, in modern uh, human anatomy in that compared to the ancestral uh, species, our, our teeth are sort of small and more sort of generalized, they're not very specific uh, tasks they use, use for a wide range of things. Our guts are smaller, our brains are bigger, and all these things are probably the outcome of a, of a high-quality diet of which cooked food, particularly cooked meat, plays an important role uh, in that. Steve Pine, one thing that we do know is that in terms of human mythology, there is this persistent notion that once we get fire, ain't no stopping us, ain't no holding us back. The one that we're the most familiar with is Prometheus, that he he, uh, he takes the, the secret of fire from the gods, gives it to human beings. Gods don't want that. He gets chained to a rock uh, and gnawed uh, by an eagle. But one thing that you found is that this is kind of a persistent story through other cultures, correct? Yes, it does. It is. I think the, the persistence of it is, is first that fire is power. And uh, people are not given, in mythology, people are not given uh, that power readily. They have to fight for it. They have to steal it. Um, they have to engage in some kind of subterfuge to get it. And uh, to build on what uh, a Christian was saying, you know, when we began cooking food, we got big heads and small guts, but then we began cooking landscapes. And at that point, we really go to the top of the food chain. And now we've accelerated our firepower so much that we're, we're making the whole planet a crockpot, and we've become a geologic force. So I would argue that our environmental power is fundamentally a firepower. And, and so you're sort of also saying that's kind of a Faustian bargain. In other words, in, in, uh, we get fire and it allows us to do all these kinds of things, including potentially grow our brain size and, and build actual civilizations, which we ordinarily think of as fairly good things. But there, there's, there's uh, a bill that comes due for that. That's what you're saying, right? That's right. I think, it, I think it's our first domestication when you think of it. Even the terms we, we continue to speak of, you know, Kendall, uh, tend, feed, these are, these are terms we, we applied to children. Um, the domus was as much for the fire as for, as for the people. Um, but we also abstracted uh, fire uh, in a technological sense, and that's, that's the Promethean 
element and in a sense um, defied the natural order. And that's where fire has become untrammeled, particularly as we've gone into industrial. Yeah, you can only burn so much. Mm-hmm. The landscape can only provide so much opportunity for burning, even if you uh, slash, draw, you know, slash, drain, um, do other things to make the landscape more combustible. So we had to go to geologic landscapes. So now we're burning fossil landscapes, in effect. And that's part of the Promethean drive abstracting it out of the natural order. So fire had always been contained by season, by day, night, by you know drought or deluge, and now it isn't. It, it can burn continually. And at that point, our, our firepower, in a sense, has become an enemy. I, I want to sort of, uh, because we're, we are kind of, um, he's bringing up some interesting things, Christian Tryon, in, in, in a way it might be interesting to know a little bit more about the archaeological record on this. So we've got fire. That means we've got something to huddle around. We've got the beginnings of, of a way of bonding a, as people. We've got the ability to cook meat that may be may correlate with our, with our increased brain size. We may have um, a little bit more time because of that to devote to other kinds of activities, the building of a civilization. But one of the things that he's talking about also is using fire to actually alter the landscape. I assume we're talking about burning away stuff so we can plant other stuff. Do we, do we know how soon in, in human development, Christian Tryon, that happens? I'm not sure that we know precisely, but it's clearly a very important, um, it's something that hunter-gatherers do across um, large parts of the world. I mean, you, you think about New England. Uh, when, when Europeans first came to New England, they were struck by sort of the large open park-like forest. This is because of a long term, for thousands of years, the groups living here had been burning uh, the forest to sort of clear it to promote growth, to, to, to attract deer. This also has a very sort of local New England flavor, but you look at Australia, for example, what they call fire stick farming there is probably a deep tradition of sort of burning the landscape to sort of pr- promote growth. Figuring out exactly when that happened is a little bit dodgy, but it's probably tens of thousands of years old, uh, the tradition of sort of burning the landscape to, to encourage growth, to manage resources. And let's go one step backwards in time, Christian Tryon. The, the other thing that happened, and we may not have said it so far, is that, okay, you've got a fire, you've got some uses for fire in terms of warmth, in terms of keeping predators away, in terms of as you go along there cooking meat. But there's almost only so much fire, uh, fire burnable materials in your immediate vicinity. So I assume that uh, the transience of people or this whole idea of leaving the valley you're in and going someplace else, uh, that may have actually been driven by the actual need to, to have stuff to burn. That may well be true for the northern latitudes. For places like Africa, I don't think that was ever a serious concern. But you look at sites uh, in Siberia or sort of northern Europe, and people are burning animal dung. They're burning bone, for example. So, yeah, people had to be clever about fuel in sort of these subglacial uh, in places where either early modern humans in Europe or Neanderthals were living, for sure. Steve Pine, one of the first other things that people do with fire, I, I assume anyway, is to connect it somehow to religious worship, to worship of the supernatural. I mean, it's going on today. There are still places, uh, I think Finland still has huge bonfires during the solstice. But, but I would assume, Steve, that this is something that happens pretty early, that we, it's one of the things we can do to somehow or other connect ourselves with divinity? Well, I think so. Again, this is a tricky question. Um, and I think part of it is the question of whether fire itself is worshipped or fire is, is a means of worship or associated with the worship. So anything you're doing at night or in closed circumstances, you're going to need light, you're going to need probably some heat, so you're going to have fire. So fire gets associated with lots of things. But there are lots of um, foundational gods 
religions that, that go back uh, to fire, identify fire as, as one of the founding members. Or uh, the god is manifest in fire, and think of Judeo-Christian tradition where uh, the burning bush. So the first real manifestation of the deity uh, is in the form of, of fire. And well, we're, we're still messing around with that idea, too. I'm, I'm thinking of... Um uh, one of the things that jumped into my head as we were preparing for the show is, you know, at this incredible moment uh, in our nation where where uh, we were frightened and shaken, uh, as we have been few times in modern life, the death of John F. Kennedy, one of the things, one of our responses was to create an eternal flame at Arlington Seminary, Cemetery. That's a really old idea. We certainly know that in Roman culture, the Vestal Virgins, that was their job, right, to feed the eternal flame. It's another thing that we've tried to do occasionally, symbolically, keep a fire burning for some reason that, that connects to what you're talking about. Well, I think that's it, but there are also, uh, I think a lot of these ceremonies and rituals grow out of very practical uh, understandings, that uh, in almost all of these ceremonies, fire is celebrated for destroying bad things and promoting good things, and it can destroy good things if it's mishandled. But generally, all these ceremonies have that as their uh, as their target. In the same way, eternal flames. I think I think the the constantly maintained flame in the village or the state uh, was simply a public utility, like having a well, uh, and people, if their fires went out, could recover it. Or at certain times, they might extinguish all fires um, in the in the area or throughout the culture and then rekindle it ceremonially, uh, sort of symbolically reestablishing their, their own identity and using fire as a means of that. And there's lots of literature we, we can see where, where in science fiction and so forth, or even in Cormac McCarthy's The Road, where the fire keepers are the ones who somehow sustain, even in this sort of scorched and apocalyptic landscape, that maintaining fire properly is, is the key to being civilized. Um, Christian Tryon, I'm a really bad archaeologist, so for all I know, we may be skipping... Um, are we skipping over import, uh, other important steps in the way that humans uh, used fire in its earliest, in their earliest relationships with it? I think you've certainly mentioned all the key ones. I mean, sort of cooking, the uh, heat. Uh, the, the key issues have come up, and the ones about, you know, sort of the, its uh, potential sort of religious powers is certainly an important one, but archaeologically is very difficult to track. So, no, I think we've covered the... We've, we've hit... We fit the key issues. And, and oh, I guess the other thing I would ask you before we lose you is that I wonder also whether access to fire had any real role in where uh, human evolution happened. In other words, you know, as we know from the movie Quest for Fire, which we, uh, which we borrowed on heavily for our introduction, you know, I mean, uh, finding fire, making fire, uh, that could be a, a pretty complicated and haphazard thing. Although I would imagine if you're in a more volcanically unstable area, your ability to make something catch fire goes way, way up. So I don't know, is there, is, does anybody ever try to make that connection? Yeah, I suspect that volcanic activity, the, the, the effects of that, or the chances for that to produce fire are pretty slim compared to lightning strikes, which is something like you know, 55 every second across the, across the globe. People seem to have occupied pretty high-latitude areas in Europe and in China you know, at least a million years ago, uh, so before the really strong evidence for fire. Um, 
it's hard to it's hard to know. The problem is that you know your classic sort of fire making toolkit, a couple of like as you sort of said in the beginning, a skit, you know, a couple of sticks, some tinder, those things simply aren't going to preserve archaeologically. So we'll probably almost never have a good idea of when sort of the ability for people to create fire on their own really started. But since you see I think re- you can reasonably argue that you see within Homo erectus the effects of fire. I think it's reasonable to argue that the, the ability to either make it on demand or to keep you know, some sort of bit uh, available is probably a very ancient uh, bit of knowledge. All right, Christian Dryan, great to talk to you. Great, uh, thank you. And you make it all very clear to us. Uh, we are going to continue our conversation after this break. Steve Pine is going to be back. We're going to talk a little bit more about fire symbolism and uh, watch it as it threads through literature. would you? Oh, oh, oh. The air got to it. The air got to it! <laughs> I did it. I did it. <laughs> Fire! There you go! Light it up! Come on! The door to help the dead and through! Go! We couldn't get much higher! Come on, baby! Light hard for you! Here you go! Here you go! It's a signal fire! Yeah! Yeah! Look what I have created! I have made fire! I have made fire! The tunnel hesitates through no time to wallow in the mire Try now we can only lose And our love become a funeral pile Come on baby, light my fire Come on baby, light my fire Try to set the night on All right. We're talking about fire. Um, we've talked about the earliest stirrings of fire, how fire uh, made people able to become people. And we're going to talk about some of its values, some of its dangers as we go along here. But one of the things that we did, we did notice is that it threads, obviously, we said it threads through religious expression. It also threads through philosophy, even as we uh, try to understand what the world around us is. The philosopher Heraclitus basically said, well, really, you know, when you get right down to it, everything's fire. All things are an interchange for fire and fire for all things, just like goods for gold and gold for goods. Uh, He considered fire to be at the fundament of of everything. Um, And when you think about it in terms of modern astrophysics, he's not wrong. I mean, we, we really do know now that everything comes from more or less fire, fire in the sense of star fire, right? Everything basically is cosmic dust, dust from stars, stuff that was burning way, way, way far away in the sky. You know, Heraclitus in some ways nailed it. But we see it all the way through poetry. We see it all the way through imagery. We're talking really more 
mostly today about our symbolic relationship with fire, our psychological relationship with fire. And obviously, yes, it is absolutely everywhere. And we'll come back right now to Steve Pine, uh, who sort of is the person who got us uh, tilted down this road. We started reading some of the stuff that he'd written, and he got us going. And so, Steve Pine, I do want to ask, I mean, in a way, you are an unusual figure in this field of study in the sense that you really are interested in fire and on a lot of different platforms, a lot of different dimensions, ranging from its symbolic nature to its real effect on the ecosystem. Where does this all come from? Can you trace your fascination with fire back to anything? Yes, it's very easy. I I had no childhood particular interest in fire uh, or any of that sort. But a few days after I graduated uh, from high school in Phoenix, I, I had a job at Grand Canyon National Park as a laborer. And the day I showed up and was signing in, they had an opening on the forest fire crew on the North Rim and were anxious to fill it and ask if I wanted to go over. I was 18. What did I know? I said, sure. It sounded like fun. And it was. Um, I returned for 15 summers. And so got a real shoulder to the shovel, nose in the ash, look at fire, and uh, saw how it shaped our lives on a fire crew, of course, but then began wondering if the same might be true for humanity at large. Did fire have a similar uh, effect? So everything everything stems from that experience. And even though I've been trained largely in the humanities, I certainly read lots of science, but trained fundamentally in the humanities, it always goes back to the, the real fire, not just symbolic fire or virtual representations of it. Uh, but there is a real thing, a, a reaction called fire, and that does certain stuff. And that's where I, I continually trace my understandings back to. You've written about this, about the way in which for a, a lot of human civilization, fire would have been kind of ever-present. I mean, it just would have been around all the time, and it would have been uh, uh, almost unthinkable to, to, to imagine worship or ceremony or anything like that that didn't involve fire. Um, but that fire was just sort of an ever-present thing. And that to a certain degree, our relationship, uh, as we moved into industrialized society and uh, other trappings of civilization, we got a little bit distant from fire and started to think about it a different way. Can you help us put a a little bit of that in, into a nutshell? Sure. Well, fire fire for a very long time was a constant present. And indeed, relationship, I think, is the, is the proper term. I mean, we heated our houses, we, we lighted um, our residence, we ran our, our factories off fire, our places of, of, of doing business, we burned our fields for farming, for pastoralism, for clearing. I mean, we used fire continually. It was an all-purpose um, technology. And uh, since we began industrializing, we've begun burning fossil landscapes, in effect, um, and we have to do that in special chambers. And uh, that means we don't see the fire anymore. So I'm in my office. uh, I've got lights. um, I've got power. I've got electricity for the phone. I've got all kinds of things, almost all of which are coming out of a power plant nearby, but none of which I would identify as fire. And yet, uh, and so in that way, fire has left vernacular life as we've gone into an urban and industrial society. In fact, the dormitories on campus aren't even allowed to have candles anymore. Fire is seen as inimical, and and it is a threat in these these kinds of built landscapes. Uh, But we can't project that back into uh, natural landscapes and so forth, which not only have fire, but need fire of the right kind. 
And that's the flip side to what we were talking about, the Promethean instinct, to sort of abstract fire, if you will, defy the natural order and use it for power, is that we are, you know, we are the fire creature. We, we are the keystone species for fire ecologically on the planet. And other animals knock over trees and dig holes, whatever. We do fire. And that is our role. And when we began industrializing, we quit that role. We quit the traditional burning that had gone on for thousands, or in some cases, tens of thousands of years. And that has proved uh, disrupting. And certainly in the last hundred years in the United States, our attempt to eliminate fire out of many of our public lands has just created an ecological insurgency that has boomed out of control and now has come back to threaten us. So we lost that other, the, 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 the pair. The Promethean is one side, let's call it the primeval, if you will, the other side, ourselves as stewards of fire for the planet. And I just maybe um, uh, I want to add Gary Snyder to this conversation in just a second, but I just um, maybe elaborate a little bit on what you just said. In other words, to whatever degree we're stewards of uh, of fire and, and we maybe screwed up uh, that part of our duty, explain what you mean by that. I mean that we, many of the landscapes that we find valuable and indeed uh, have come to treasure and have sought to preserve were created with people contributing their fires as well as nature's fires. And some of these landscapes were the result of almost wholly of human-delivered fire. But you do it in a particular way. Uh, landscapes, you know, plants are adapted to a particular pattern of fire. It's not that they're adapted or not to fire. That's like saying they're adapted to water. It's, it's the particular rainfall pattern that they're adapted to. So it's this particular pattern of fire. We broke that pattern. And now... We've lost in most of our landscapes, not all, the ability to to use tame fire, mm-hmm. uh, to use, in a sense, a controlled fire to keep those that regime functioning. And instead, fire's going to come in, but now we've got feral fire. It's all wildfire, and it's it's destructive and costly. Um, this is a great time to bring uh, Gary Snyder in. I probably don't have to introduce Gary Snyder, but Gary Snyder is a very famous poet. Uh, he has uh, written uh, at least 18 books. Uh, he's an expert on wildfires, too. He's a professor of English at UC Davis, and his uh, his latest collection of poems is called This Present Moment. Welcome to the conversation, Gary Snyder. I'm here listening in. All right. So, well, now you're speaking. And, um, you know, uh, just, just we'll sort of circle back to what Steve was just saying. But um, one of the things uh, that that struck me as he was saying the, the kind of the earlier part of our relationship with fire, the one that we got kind of distanced from, is that we're, we're just coming back to it all the time, right? Every time we need to get real, you know, we it seems like we use fire. I mean, people go to the Burning Man Festival. There's a reason why. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason why. You know, at, in, the, in the Charlie Hebdo vigils in Paris, people are holding candles. They're not holding something else. Uh, in our big holidays, uh, we have Yule logs and burning things, the Olympic flame, the eternal flame that I talked about before at Arlington, the Statue of Liberty's torch. All this, though, I mean, every time we have to get really serious about something, it seems as though fire is the, the thing that we go to. So you're the poet. I'll let you take that idea over. Uh, I'm also a... Um a country liver, a rural person. Uh, I've been out here in the Sierra Nevada, built my house here in 1970. Uh, and I and all of my neighbors, ranchers, farmers, loggers, uh, organic growers, and so forth, uh, 
fire is never very far from what we do. I mean, and, and I don't mean theoretical or or um, um, uh, contained fire. I mean, we're, we're, we have a pattern through the year of uh, uh, thinning the forest and uh, reducing fire hazard potential, piling it up during the dry season, getting in there and lighting it with a, to- a propane torch or a, uh, an old coffee can full of kerosene, uh, and at the same time um, maintaining a... Um, uh, a semi-religious respect for this extraordinary energy. Uh, and, and I'd like to say that uh, wildfire, is, all fire is wildfire. Uh, you know, when you have a, a prescribed burn or a control burn uh, out in the woods here uh, or out in the rangelands, as they do, uh, the fire is, is a wildfire. Uh, and your choices are based on how you do it is based on your understanding of how wildfire responds to temperature, moisture, and uh, air moisture, fuel moisture, direction of the wind. See, you guys, you guys are so much more connected to the elements. I'm sitting here in Hartford, Connecticut. We mainly do insurance. So, uh, you know, everything that you're saying, as far as I'm concerned, would just make your rates go up. Uh, but, but clearly, you guys, both of you are in places where, in fact, you're thinking and talking uh, about fire in a much more realistic and connected way. Although, Steve Pine, I don't think anything that Gary said uh, persuades me that you're wrong, that most of industrialized and suburban and citified humanity are pretty distant from the realities he's describing right now. Yeah, I would agree, and and my my favorite emblem of that is uh, the fact that how people play this tape of of a fireplace yes. on their TV or monitor. <laughs> you mean instead television? of having the real thing? No, I, it, it's a virtual. It's becoming a virtual experience. No, I, I said I that. I said that as a joke because I think of the television as, as humanity's carrying forward of the de- of the desire to sit next to a flickering light. Right, but he's he's also he's correct and in, in New York there's a ch- isn't there a Yule log channel in New York yeah. City that just goes on for the holiday season so that yeah. you can just turn it on at any time and yeah, and, and you're, <laughs> yeah I've heard about that. <laughs> well, that. That's sort of the the extreme. Um, fire is a shapeshifter. It takes its character from its context. So if you've got a candle, that's a pretty, I consider that a fairly tame fire because you create a context that's tame. If you're burning off your stubble in a field or, or uh, a pasture, that's in a sense a cultivated fire because the landscape is controlled. I think what Gary's talking about um, in burning wildlands or more uh, less domesticated landscapes, it's like training a grizzly bear to dance. You have to work with it, and it can always it can always go wild on you, the ch- change in wind or whatever. So it, it's very hard to... Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll yield to him. <laughs> I, admire <laughs> I was his just going to say so. that the third world and the fourth world is still out there using real fire. Yeah. All over Africa and South America and Southeast Asia, etc. It it also strikes me that in our imagery, you know, it, it because fire is both things, uh, because it's uh, a... a uh, Promethean secret uh, and, and also something that we're supposed to try to manage. It just has, seems to have such an incredibly double-edged uh, imagery no matter where you look. I mean, you know, fire is is so much associated with purification. 
Um, the idea that, uh, and I, I was talking before the show began, I think, with uh, those people who are caught up in Game of Thrones these days. You know, you, you see this, uh, one of the characters walk into her husband's funeral pyre, which is a very dangerous and serious problem in, in some uh, Indian cultures, I mean, in East Indian cultures. Uh, but, uh, but, but, all, but, but here it's transformative. It's refining. It's the thing. It burns away all the impurities and weakness. Uh, and I think we have that idea over and over again of the of the refining fire it, 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 it really is almost as though everything you can say about fire has a flip side an opposite side that that's seems just as true to people absolutely um, there's a great saying about fire that makes the best of friends and the worst of enemies so like fire is like a knife or a gun uh, you don't mess with it without taking it seriously <laughs> That, that would seem to make sense. Um, what we're going to do here is grab a break. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk more about, uh, about fire in culture, fire uh, in poetry, fire as we see it in the arts. job all about fire it's a living thing Brian it breathes it eats and it hates the only way to beat it is to think like it to know that this flame will spread this way across the door and up across the ceiling not because of the physics of flammable liquids, but because it wants to. Some guys on this job fire owns them. Makes them fight it on its level. But the only way to truly kill it is to love it a little. Oh, misty eye of the mountain below. Keep careful watch of my brother's souls And should the sky be filled with fire and smoke Keep watching over during sun So fire is something we talk about all the time, but talking about talking about fire is harder to do. Really sort of um, getting, uh, I guess, sort of doing metacognition about fire. is uh, The minute you start doing it, it gets very complicated. Maybe, as I say, because we are so interwoven with fire. So who's good at that? Who's good at putting into words the things that are very difficult to put into words? Well, of course, poets are. Uh, and uh, I think as we started to think about this show, everybody working on the show thought about a different poet or about some poet. I immediately thought of um, that nature is a Heraclitean fire and the comfort of the resurrection, the famous poem by Gerard Manley. 
Stanley Hopkins, which he really sort of um, does sort of um, revive that idea of Heraclitus that kind of everything, the entire landscape um, is uh, is fire, that we, we live in fire and that his notion of uh, eternity also is sort of ever living, everlasting fire. I'm probably badly misinterpreting that poem. But anyway, it was the first thing I thought of. And, and so we thought we really do have to talk to poets and we have to think about poets. And so uh, one of the things that Josh did was to contact Charles Wright, who in fact uh, does have a poem called A Short History of Fire. Uh, we have the entire poem available for you on SoundCloud embedded in our web page at wrnpr.org, uh, a special reading of the poem that Charles Wright did for us. We're going to play you just a, a little bit uh, of that right now. This is a short history of the shadow, one part of us that's real. This is the way the world looks in late November. No leaves on the trees, no ledge to foil the lightfall. No ledge in early December either, and no ice. La Nina unhosing the heat pump up from the gulf. Orange crust sunset over the Blue Ridge. No shadow from anything as evening gathers its objects and eases into earshot. Under the influx, the outtake, Leon Battista Alberti says, some lights are from stars, some from the sun and moon, and other lights are from fires. The light from the stars makes the shadow equal to the body. Light from fire makes it greater, there under the tongue, there under the utterance. All right. Um, we'll come back to that. By the way, it's called A Short History uh, of the Shadow, not the Fire. Uh, we'll come back to that, but keep uh, keep that in your mind. But Gary Snyder, while we still have you, uh, you're a poet. A lot of your poetry is about fire. I- is there an easy way to explain why you write about it a lot? Two reasons. One, uh, I've grown up with it all my life as a person in the West, which is an arid land of forests and dryness, both, and constantly uh, catching fire and burning uh, wildfire in the summer. Uh, that's one reason. The other reason is, as a, a Buddhist and as a spiritual practitioner of a certain sort, uh, the imagery uh, and the ceremonies even of fire are uh, uh, built into our tradition. There is such a thing as called the fire ceremony uh, that runs through uh, originally ancient Hinduism and then was carried over into Buddhism. Uh, so it's it's very close to me and very comfortable to me. There's also a fair, uh, Native, uh, Native American fire ceremonies as well. And I think these days also a lot. I actually attended, while working on a magazine article, this, uh, you know, a fire ceremony, a kind of new age fire ceremony, I guess you'd have to say. But I have to say, I, I found it really moving and really, um, I'm sure it was maybe a, a little bit of a mishmash of uh, of the fire ceremonies that you describe and maybe, maybe some Native American traditions as well. But um, despite my ability to maintain some journalistic detachment from it, I, I found myself drawn in and weeping. And there is some way in which fire is just kicking a cord inside us. Oh, it's powerful. Yeah. Burning Man, I've... <laughs> uh, the effect that Burning Man has had on uh, tens of thousands of people is a really interesting example of that. Um, we, we do want you, while you're here, to read, uh, if you can, uh, Wildfire News, uh, one of your poems. I'll do that for you right. gladly, and I'll tell you what it's about very briefly. The Forest Service for years uh, has had a little slogan, only you can prevent forest fires. That's not true. The major proportion of uh, number of forest fires in the far west, west of the Rockies, and maybe east of the Rockies, too, are caused by lightning. 
We get 20,000 lightning strikes every summer in the Sierra Nevada alone. Uh, and uh, it finally sunk into me that forest fires are not just something that Native people and Indigenous people set for their uh, useful purposes, but uh, wildfires have been part of life on the planet uh, for as long as there's been anything to burn. And so that is my wildfire news. Hmm. That's the news, <laughs> that there's always been fire. So I'll read the poem for you right now. All right. For millions, for hundreds of millions of years, there were fires. Fire after fire. Fire raging forest or jungle. Giant lizards dashing away. Big necks sticking out from the sea. Looking at the land in surprise, fire after fire, lightning strikes by the thousands, just like today. Volcanoes erupting, fire flowing over the land, huge sequoia trees, two-foot-thick fireproof bark. Fire pines, their cones love the heat. How long to say... That's how they covered the continents. Ten locks of millennia or more. I have to slow down my mind. Slow down my mind. Rome was built in a day. <laughs> All right, Gary Snyder, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And we're going to continue our conversation with fire. Uh, before we go to our next guest, though, we've got a call here from Brad in Bloomfield. It might be something that uh, Steve Pine can help us out with. Brad, what's on your mind? Hey, I wanted to call in uh, to bring the conversation back to uh, Greek mythology as well as Heraclitus and where Heraclitus draws his metaphors from. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Heraclitus was referencing in large part the Hesiodic tradition of fire as being the center of the universe, uh, drawing from both the beginning of creation on the abyss of the water. And it's hard to talk about fire without referencing its contrast and metaphor, uh, water. Mm -hmm. I might have mixed those up there. My apologies. But the fire itself references, as you noted, a sharp dichotomy between our culture, our cultural understanding, and our need to occasionally adapt as individuals. And Prometheus in Hesiod's Theogony shows that contrast well as being the god of of rationality and the weaver of cultural fabric and also the god who fied, uh, I believe at the time it was the Titans, uh, and brought humans fire. And that, that sort of goes back to what you were saying, Steve uh, Pine, which is, I mean, th th this is the exact double edge of fire that we keep coming back to. You can't live with it and you can't live without it. Well, you, you can live with it, but it's an incredibly dangerous thing. Uh, and, and we're really now at a tipping point uh, as a, a species where, where we're asking that question. I mean, maybe the Titans or the gods were right. Uh, maybe it wasn't such a good idea to give us fire uh, if we're going to warm the earth to the point we're living at. It's, it's a weird way in which this incredibly ancient myth is coming true in a different way. And there are, as I said, many versions of that. I, I think there's one from Thailand where 
uh, the, the potentate who holds the fires simply refuses to give it. He says, it's too dangerous. You won't be able to control it. It will ruin you. Um, I want to add one final guest here, uh, Dr. Eric Rapkin, uh, Professor Emeritus of English Language and Literature uh, and Professor Emeritus of Art and Design at the University of Michigan at, at Ann Arbor, uh, one of many scholars that Josh talked to uh, about this consistent imagery of fire. Um, and uh, Dr. Rapkin, first of all, I think you heard a little bit of that Charles Wright poem, which you're also, I think, independently aware of. We had Gary Snyder reading a poem about fire. It wouldn't have been difficult for us to find a hundred really salient uh, and, and, and epic uh, passages in literature or, or anywhere, any part of the arts that we wanted to go to where, where fire was, was the dominant metaphor. Um, uh, I mean, maybe there's no easy answer to the question why, but as a scholar, do you have a take on that? I do, actually. Uh, fire has, as some of your guests have said, uh, extraordinary duality. Uh, good servant, terrible master. Uh, Prometheus brings us fire. But fire combines two things inexorably, both light and heat. And each of those has a duality. Uh, for instance, knowledge can overwhelm us, as it does to uh, Saul on the way to Damascus. And then he's blinded by too much knowledge and arises three days later at St. Paul. Heat makes us alive. So, yes, we have heat that predigests our food to a certain extent. But when someone is dead, you know because his body is cold. We're warm-blooded. So heat is both good and bad. Light is both knowledge and illumination. The animals who don't approach us around that campfire don't fail to approach us because they're afraid of the fire. They fail to approach us because they are nocturnal animals, and we are rolling back to the night with the light that's associated with fire. There's light that isn't fire, and there's heat that isn't fire, but fire always has the two together. So if you look at science, what you find is, you know, the cold light of fireflies. If you look at science fiction, the subtitle of Frankenstein is the modern Prometheus. If you think of the movie image, what, what Victor does is put together charnel waste, pieces of cold human flesh, and then he raises them to the top of the castle where the fire comes down from the heavens. He catches the lightning. The sun is, in every culture that moves toward monotheism, the first embodiment of the monotheistic God. The sun brings us the light that allows us to see. That's knowledge. The knowledge, if it's too great, stuns us, as with the burning bush. But knowledge associated with light, which is therefore also always associated with fire, is in every language. A person of vision, good perspective. No, that was unclear. Do you see what I mean? Look at that. Language makes knowledge and seeing the same set of cognitions. Fire contains that. There can be wrong knowledge. He looked through rose-colored glasses. We find fire everywhere because it always conjoins these two things. The heat can be love. The heat can be consuming. I was moved when Steve Pine said earlier in the uh, show that he first really thought about fire when he graduated from high school in Phoenix. 
Right. But yeah, so the phoenix, obviously, uh, the symbol of change, the symbol of resurrection, the rising from the ashes, that's the, where the town gets its name from. I don't dare ask anybody even one more question. We're essentially out of time here. I do want to thank everybody, Steve Pine, Christian Tryon, Gary Snyder, and Eric Rabkin, and especially Josh Nalev pulled this uh, very unusual show together. And so thank you, and we'll be back tomorrow.